Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Is this microphone on? Oh my goodness, a hot mic causes a fuss in Ontario. An update on Bill C-7 and why it's so important. Plus, a look at what is happening in India. Fascinating conversation. Straight ahead, let's get to it. Now, I told him I told him I didn't know a thing about it, and I told him that the managers in the newsroom don't know a thing about what they're talking about, and I don't. They just tell me what to say, and I just. Oh wait, is this on? Uh oh, uh oh! This microphone was on the whole time. I totally Barbara yaffied it. I don't know why I bring all these papers. I never look at them. I never look at these papers. They just tell me what to say. That is Barbara Yaffe, the associate medical officer of health for this province. During a press conference on Monday, as she sat down, guess what? The mic was hot. The mic was hot. You gotta beware of the mic, Barbara Yaffe. Turns out that Barbara Yaffe is just like me. She's like a local news anchor. <laughs> I just say whatever they write down for me. <laughs> See, just like me. Just my, like yeah, just read the teleprompter. I don't know what's going on. I just read the teleprompter. I don't know what's happening. Is Barbara Yaffe? And uh, a, a little bit of a statement that has gone, shall we say, viral? Whoa! Vi- the viral load on this thing. So, of course, the story is about, you know, here it's Barbara Yaffe making this this joke about, oh, I, well, what, I don't even read these papers. What is this? I all? Why I Ste- read all these papers. I never look at them. I don't look at these. What do I need these papers for? Papers? <laughs> Facts? Figures? Forget it. I don't need it. And as for, you know, having an independent thoughts and being able to be a judge the situation, you know, from its medical, you know, medical uh, merits, I, I don't have to do that because I just do what? What do I do? I just say what they tell me. <laughs> I just say whatever they write down for me. <laughs> oh, that microphone was on. That mic was on. Here's uh, Barbara Yaffe's response to that. Uh, I was referencing the fact that my communications team prepped me for these updates with researched and vetted remarks. I was also referencing and reflecting to Dr. Williams on why I carry around extra paperwork. All right, you folks, uh, we are in the silly season. No kidding here. Really? Come on. As a guy, as a man, as a professional... As a person who works around microphones my whole life, uh, I've, you know, always wearing a mic, doing this, doing that. Uh, This thing can happen. It happens. Obviously, obviously, we, we don't need to throw any shade in this. But here's what I think we should do. For things like this... Or anybody that just does something that's kind of, you know, Dr. Yaffe should know better. But, you know, anybody that does something dumb like that, like violates social distancing and physical distancing rules. You know what we think we need now in this province? Forget about the new advertising campaign, all the rest of that. You know what we need? We need Tom Cruise. I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. I don't understand that. See, Doc Williams, you see, this is how we get the message through to people, is you scream and you yell. You get all cruisy on them. You've got to be kidding me. 
You go Top Gun. You go Maverick on it. Is what you do. Is Maverick the deal? And you just freak I out. See it again. So put on a mask. That's I think Tom. Can we just make Tom Cruise the international spokesperson for physical distancing and COVID safety? I think we need ah. that. I think that would be good. I think that's required. You know we are in a danger zone right now because I think we do like no word of a lie, no joke. We I, we are in a danger spot, are we not right now? You know because we have this thing where you know everybody's you know suspicious of. You know, who's in charge? Or should we really listen to the medical officials? So we have that. we got the holidays coming up. You know, everybody's like, well, I, you know, I'm just going to make decisions on my own. I'll just make my own calls on this. And, oh, look, they got a vaccine. They're handing out a vaccine. So, whoa, come on over. Bring the cheese ball. So that's where we are. We're in a danger zone right now. And I, that's a big problem for us. And you see those numbers again today. I don't want to freak you out. I don't want to freak out with the numbers. 2139. Hamilton. I want to update you on this. Hamilton 47. Because I said that yesterday, if you were on the program yesterday with us, uh, we talked about Hamilton and the fact that people are heading out there to Lime Ridge Mall, for example, which has put out a statement saying, hey, come on, come shopping. We can come here. We're open later. Uh, Hamilton, it's still at 47 today. That's way down from where they were yesterday. It's got to be good news for residents of the Hammer. I want to talk about something that we had on the program yesterday as well. We had a big guest, big star, big, big get. Sheba Siddiqui, my producer, uh, managed to get Scott Galloway, who is a professor at NYU, best-selling author, uh, the host of a number of very popular podcasts. And we talked about a bunch of different things, Scott Galloway and I, about, you know, the impact of the pandemic going forward, what are going to be the implications of all kinds of things in the sector in terms of the economy and how we live our lives. And I was just, this part struck me. And when I went home last night, I was talking to my wife and she said, well, this really stuck out to her as well. And I'm talking to Sheba today. And she said, this part in particular really stuck out. Here is Scott Galloway talking about the unintended consequences of a trend of working from home that will continue even after the pandemic is over. Probably the biggest losers will be working mothers, because if you have the opportunity to move 100 miles from headquarters and one of you has to give up your job, it's usually uh, it's usually the woman. Uh, typically, the woman bears a greater share of the burden at the house, so she will most likely work remote. And there's just no getting around it. Proximity is a function of relationships and promotions, and the people who can afford or who have decided to go into the office every day are more likely to see their careers and their salaries escalate. So I wonder if I wonder if this will actually be a step backward in terms of women closing the wage gap. But there will be a ton of unintended consequences here, but I think we're finding that a lot of productivity has actually gone up when we take out commuting, when we take out getting ready for work. Some people are getting five to ten hours a week back, getting a day back by not commuting into work. It's going to be situational, huge unintended consequences. That is Scott Galloway on this program yesterday talking about unintended consequences from work from home because of the pandemic. And Sheba Siddiqui is the producer of this program and joins me on the line. Sheba, why did that stick out so much to you? This was very discouraging to hear, Carter. I mean, first of all, he is so smart. That was such an incredible interview. And this stuck out to me because nine months ago, 
I thought the world was ending. Everybody was in a panic. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what this virus was capable of. But once things got under control, and especially I'd say in the last four months, now, as you already know, I have four kids under the age of 11. Uh, these last four months, they have been in school. They have been doing virtual. They've actually physically been going into their school. And it has been fantastic. I love working virtually. I love it. My kids love it. I'm not battling traffic and the commute. I don't come home exhausted from sitting in, on, the, you know, on on the highway for you know, driving for an hour. I have energy for them. Uh, I can drop them off at school every morning. I can pick them up from school on certain days. The school's five minutes away from us, so I'm there at breakfast every morning. I used to always miss breakfast with them to come in to work every day to start, you know, get get on it with the with the AC show. Yeah, sure. Because I'm such a taskmaster. I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Such a tough guy to work with. Yeah, but I so I don't want to see it again. Yeah, don't make me get all Tom Cruisey on you. No, well, we know. We already know. That's already your reputation. Don't worry. You're on the newsroom. Uh, but you, but then when when you hear him talk about, you know, when we do have the opportunity to go back into work, this whole FaceTime thing about, you know, whether or not that's going to have an implication on your career yes. long term if you decide to continue doing this oh well that's the problem so i have been told um that it is a possibility that once this pandemic is over i may have the option of working from home virtually continuing that and i, I know many people it i think it really depends on the phase of life that you're in that would be a dream come true for me because i love my job i love what i do for a living god i'm really blowing up your ego right now but i i love this i love producing News, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a dream job for me. I have a lot of fun with it, and but I also love being a mother. So now I can do both. It's guilt-free. I get to be a present mom. I get to be there as long as the kids stay in the school provided. Um, I get to be there 100% for my job. But he goes on to say, my career and my salary won't escalate, which is so discouraging to hear. Just because you, you're not going to be there, you're not going to have not going to have that FaceTime. You you're not going to be in front of the bosses, and then you're not going to be able to establish those you know emotional connections and those yes. connections that you get when you work in proximity to people. You've got it. I mean, it's not the same thing. We already know it's not the same thing over Zoom. All of you know all the meetings people are having, business travels down because Zoom's taking over. But it's not the same. You don't build those connections. I really do miss my team. We'll meet, you know, we do meet every few weeks or so over Zoom, but it's not the same thing. We don't connect the same way. There are jokes not the same way. You know, our, our Slack channel, we, we, we're all laughing at the jokes, but when Dave Woodard makes those jokes, it's just, it's way funnier in the newsroom. Yeah, why do all the jokes always have to be at my expense, though? Why is oh, that? Well, because it's so I easy. <laughs> it's so easy. But you know what, Scott, Scott Galloway also goes on to say in that interview, he said something really interesting, that one of the keys to happiness when people were at the end of their lives was that they wished they had invested more in their relationships. That was something that really stuck out to me as well. So Yeah, nobody ever says, I wish I spent more time at the office on their deathbed. Yes, yes, exactly. So I feel like it's, you know, you... I have always maintained that you, as a, a working mother, you cannot have it all at the same time. You can't. And you yeah, do this, have the, to... This is this myth of balance that, you know, that, that somehow 
you know, and, and Galloway talks about this too. I'm stealing this from him. He talks about that, you know, there's a myth of work-life balance. It's like, you know, you, you make sacrifices. You, you either say, I'm going to sacrifice my career to raise my children, be present at home and do all of those things. And that, uh, that inequity falls on women or, you know, you, you make choices on your relationship and say, well, no, I'm going to pour myself into my career and my job and things are going to suffer at home. And people make those choices. They do, and no judgment on either end of those. I've done both. I have been at home. I was, you know, work. I was that mom at home when the kids were really young, and I loved it. But I did miss my career when I went back full fledged. My youngest, you know, he started school full time. So for me, this is a dream come true to be able to work virtually from home. But now I'm learning that it's it's going to be detrimental to my career. Lots of stuff to think about. Thanks, Shiba. Thank you so much. And if you want to listen to that full interview, you can. Listen to it on our podcast. This program is also presented every afternoon as a podcast. So if uh, you miss something or want to hear something again, share it with somebody else. You can find that anywhere you find your favorite podcast, The Alan Carter Show. Just look for the interview with Scott Galloway. Tomorrow is going to be an important day in Canada as we find out whether or not the court will uh, uh, grant uh, an extension for B, Bill C-7, pardon me, as I get going. See, I just, all I do is, I just... <laughs> I, I just say whatever they write down for me. <laughs> I just, that's what I do. I'm, I'm kind of the Barbara Yaffe of hosts on this radio station. I just, I don't know why I'm carrying all these papers. I just say what they tell me. I Barbara Yaffe. Why I bring all these papers. I never look at them. I never look at these. That is the medical officer of health, the assistant associate, pardon me, associate medical officer of health in the province of Ontario. Bill C-7. Let's get back to me trying to read this stuff. Bill C-7. Now, this is all about medical-assisted dying. And what happened is, of course, we had a law here in Canada, but it was it was impacted by a ruling in Quebec in 2019, and this new bill is intended to bring the law into compliance with that Superior Court ruling in Quebec. And the time is ticking, and this is important to understand. And to help me get a better grip on what's in this bill and why this is controversial in the Senate, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Helen Long who is the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Welcome, Helen. Uh, good afternoon. Let's begin with what are the contentious portions of this bill, namely this uh, addressing people that are not near the end of life, but yet will still be able to apply for medically-assisted death. Yeah, so that's one of two key, there's, there's really what I would consider two major amendments to the law proposed in Bill C-7. That's the first of them, that individuals who do have a grievous and irremediable condition and who are suffering intolerably, but whose life is not um, ending in the near future, they don't have a reasonably foreseeable death, are able to um, apply for uh, a made assessment. And as you note, that's the result of the Quebec Superior Court ruling in Truchon, um, which stated that those individuals, you know, just because they belong to a group and um, their death is not reasonably foreseeable, that's not a reason to discriminate against them and that they should have the same right, the constitutional right, 
um, to apply for MAID if they so choose and they meet the eligibility criteria. And what's the second point of contention? The second, well, the second one I don't think, I mean, okay, so the second major change is what we call Audrey's Amendment, and that's that an individual who has been assessed and approved for MAID and who has scheduled a date, if they lose capacity within that time frame, the practitioner is still able to go ahead with the um, MAID provision. And that was a result of Audrey Parker was a woman in Nova Scotia. She had hoped to live through one final Christmas two years ago, um, but was forced to die early because she was afraid she would lose capacity as a result of her condition. So that's the second major change. That one is less contentious. I think when you talk about what's contentious, um, the other piece is the specific exclusion of individuals who have a mental disorder as their sole uh, underlying condition. And there's been a lot of discussion at the Senate um, about whether that is, in fact, the same situation that we had in Trushan, where a specific group of individuals is being discriminated against. And as a result, is that exclusion perhaps unconstitutional? Can you give me a better sense of what do we mean by, by mental condition? Are we talking mental health? What's, how's that yeah, defined in the bill? Health, uh, mental health-related illness. Um, so someone who, you know, as an example, maybe has, a, has severe depression that they would suggest is causing them to have what is intolerable suffering to them, um, should that individual be able to apply for MAID. And in Bill C-7, the government has specifically excluded those individuals. Uh, so there is some discussion now that is perhaps by excluding that specific group, are we again discriminating against them um, because we're, we're basing it on an entire group rather than providing a case-by-case assessment as, as we have been doing and as Trushan, um, Justice Baudouin pointed out in the Trushan decision, is the appropriate way to deal with these things. Give me a sense of the timeline. How important is this uh, potential extension on a deadline tomorrow? Yeah, well, for the you know for a Canadian who's who's suffering intolerably, and and we're talking about people whose you know their lives in their minds they're no longer um, able to enjoy quality of life. They're in constant unrelenting pain. They can't sleep. You know, people call us and their their situation is is horrible. And I think as a compassionate society, how important or how how um, you know how how impactful is that delay? It's hugely impactful for those individuals. Um, that's two more months. You know, assuming the timelines are adhered to, that's two more months on a decision that was first ruled in the court in September of 2019. So that's a long time to suffer. Is your organization frustrated with the fact that this did indeed pass Parliament, it passed the House of Commons, but now it is held up in the Senate and it is unclear as to whether or not it will make it in time or just how long it will take to actually get through the Senate? I mean, I think we're, you know, I think we're disappointed um, that this is where we are. I think laying the blame, you know, we wouldn't lay the blame at the feet of Senate. I think this has been a long uh, process. It's been impacted, obviously, by COVID, uh, a variety of other factors. The Senate um, did a pre-study about a week ago, and they have just got the bill, you know, very recently. So, um, you know, we're very disappointed on behalf of those Canadians who are suffering. But at the same time, I think we're, we're pleased that it's at least in the Senate. It would be wonderful to see it passed by the end of the week. Um, but I guess we're all waiting on the ruling tomorrow. And 
obviously you're in support of the bill. I'm, it was there's something that the or, your organization was looking for that is not in this bill. No, I mean, we're pleased with the bill overall. Um, I think there were a few small amendments where, uh, for example, they had suggested uh, a 90-day period. We thought the period could perhaps be um, shorter for assessments in some cases. But but overall, we'd be pleased to see the bill passed in its current format. Helen Long is the CEO with Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on this really important issue. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there you go. That is something to keep your eye on federally as we look at whether or not that extension will be granted tomorrow. And, you know, I appreciate sometimes people are like, well, why do we want to talk about this? Well, if you're at a certain point in your life, you know, I think it's it behooves, if you don't mind, it behooves you to begin thinking about what would you like to see? What would you want? You know, it's important every once in a while to just kind of get our gaze up a little bit from, you know, focused on what's happening in our immediate vicinity and in our neighborhoods to look at what's happening around the world and certainly how it impacts our neighbors. There is such a large diaspora from India in uh, Ontario. And it ha- what is happening in India right now is having a huge impact in our neighbors. And I think it's important that we try and understand what's happening there and, and what it means for the world uh, at large and Canada in particular. And to help me discuss what's going on right now, I am pleased to welcome to the program Sanjay Ruparelia, who is a professor in the Department of Politics at Ryerson. Welcome, Sanjay. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with an update on the farmer protest that has um, still been racking so much of India and where that is right now. Could you kind of distill that for me, what that's about? Sure. So the protests which are happening in India, uh, which have been gathering steam over the last few months, uh, are in response to some uh, new new legislation that was, was rammed through Parliament. I think it's the best way to describe it in September by the government. Uh, there were three laws, but the one that's really galvanized the protest is one which says that farmers are now free to sell their produce uh, to anyone in the country and not simply to the state-regulated agricultural markets. And that might seem uh, sort of strange to Canadian ears to say, why would they be protesting having more freedom to sell? But the reason is, is that uh, under the current under the current sort of situation, farmers get are allowed to get a, what's called a minimum support price, a minimum price for their produce in these state-regulated markets. Um, and what they're really concerned about is that if it opens it up to the private sector, they'll be at the mercy of large corporate agribusiness uh, who will pay them less. And that's of great concern to them. This also has a potential sectarian angle to it as well, because my understanding is, is that the, the majority of farmers would be sick. That's right. Well, so the laws, of course, affect the whole country, but the mobilization has been pushed by farmers, particularly in three states, uh, Punjab, Haryana, uh, which are which are on the border of Delhi, the capital city, the capital union territory, uh, and the largest state in the country, Uttar Pradesh, uh, which lies to the to the east. And um, it it didn't have any sectarian, uh, you know, motivation at all whatsoever. It's actually the government some government-affiliated uh, uh, 
politicians basically raised the specter that, that some of these protests were being fueled by so-called Khalistanis, those who were those who historically in some section of the of that political movement in Punjab that were, were claiming or desiring secession from India or an independent homeland. There's nothing to this, of course. I mean, these are just farmers trying to protect their interests as, as agriculturalists. Um, but the government systematically has tried to tar a lot of opposition, whoever it may be, uh, Greenpeace, civil rights activists, opposition parties since it's come to power in 2014, as being anti-national, so to speak. Um, and that's what has added further, sort of further fuel to the fire um, and it's created a very dangerous situation because of politicizing something by calling it a sort of question of national security. When it's not about that, it's about the interests of these farmers and whether they can be protected um, in, you know, amidst these sort of larger reforms that India is trying to push through. One of the other stories that really caught my eye when reading about India in the, in the last week or so was this concept of love jihad. Um, and could you explain what this conspiracy theory is? And does it play in at all to uh, the way that the government in India, well, Hindu nationalist government, is is trying to conduct itself? Yes, absolutely. And, and you described it right as a conspiracy theory. Uh, the government that's in power right now is called the, the party that leads it. It's called the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party. It's a party that has been uh, that's identified. Uh, it's, a, it's it's clear. It's it's uh, its ideology is Hindu nationalist. It believes that India is not a secular plural nation, but it's fundamentally a Hindu nation, which of course threatens the status of many minorities. India has the second largest Muslim population in the world. So since, again, the government's come to power in 2014 and been reelected in 2019, it's passed through a lot of different laws and also empowered a lot of its foot soldiers to impose a sort of Hindu vision of the nation, uh, which has really threatened uh, minority communities of various kinds, and particularly Muslims. I mean, this is sort of the bedmar of Hindu nationalists. And the idea of love jihad is to say that interfaith marriages between Hindus and Muslims, and particularly between Muslim men and Hindu women is something that should be not simply opposed, but should be banned. And so very recently, a month ago, uh, the, the Uttar Pradesh government, this is the largest state in India, uh, almost 200 million people, just to give a sense for Canadians who may not have heard of this state before, it'd be the fifth largest country in the world by population, pushed through an ordinance banning uh, marriages um, because on, on, on grounds between Hindus and Muslims, and again, particularly between Hindu men, Muslim women, on grounds that somehow this was an act of forced religious conversion. And on the face of it, of course, this patently unconstitutional, violates Article 14 of the Indian Constitution, which is the right to equality, Article 21, which is the right to liberty, Article 25, which is freedom of conscience. So, of course, it will end up in the Supreme Court, uh, and most likely, I would imagine, hope it would be thrown out. But what it does is really put a chilling effect um, on on exactly that, on, on, on relationships between men and women who belong from different faiths. And so it's patently anti-liberal, it's anti-secular, it's against the Indian constitution. But this is part and parcel of the BJP's agenda, which is to, to turn India, India's democracy, which historically, of course, was a secular, plural, multi-faith, multi-religious democracy, increasingly into sort of Hindu nationalist. Uh, democracy, and a democracy which is becoming deeply illiberal and in that sense threatening its own democratic status. 
So it's a very worrying moment um, in India. It's been long going. But I'd say politically, the the bigger challenge right now for the government is, is this massive farmers mobilization. We haven't you, seen this kind of movement since the 1980s. Could you just give me a sense, though, then, then how, how is this impacting uh, Canadians, uh, Canadians with, with ties to India? And, and as you mentioned, you know, we have ethnic minorities, so, it, you know, it's, it's not a... a um, a solid block, obviously, and and I'm just wondering if the frictions in India you are seeing being reflected here in Canada. We we have had, for example, protests in Toronto uh, in support of Sikh farmers in India. Yeah, so I I, I, mean, I haven't studied this closely, but from what I have seen in the news and coverage, of course, is as I was saying, a, a large percentage of the farmers involved in the protests are from these two states, and Punjab and Haryana. And as we know, there are very large diaspora communities in Canada, uh, particularly in Ontario, in the GTA, and out in British Columbia as well. There's probably a higher concentration of Punjabis amongst the South Asian population in BC than here. But, you know, they they feel, I think in the beginning, they they probably have lots of family and communities that they're related to, of course, back in India, and and sort of sense that, share that sense of threat to their interests. Um, And so that's why you see a sort of vocal demands here to sort of protect that. I think when uh, recently when some politicians with the government started to accuse them of being potentially uh, separatists, of course, that really inflamed anger uh, in many communities because it was had no had no basis. Um, And so I can understand why that why that uh, response has taken place. Of course, the government itself here, Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau weighing in on it, during, I think it was just a local community event and sort of uh, saying that he was supporting the protest in India, of course, has really angered the Indian government. And not just the government, there have been some some also circles in India that have felt that uh, he really shouldn't be putting uh, his finger into those events there. Um, that's, a, that's an open debate and question. I think most countries, including our own, should be open to criticism from abroad. But I mean, what was driving it, of course, here was a concern about uh, you know that that many of these communities were important constituencies for the Liberal Party. That's mm-hmm. another matter, I suppose. But mm-hmm. but you know it's it's a real concern. Um, I think the concern, of course, is what's happening in India. And fundamentally, there are two issues. One is about the. I should add one one other thing. Probably said a lot already, but I think yeah. it's important for Canadians to understand. Um, agriculture only represents about fifteen percent of the Indian economy in terms of its GDP, but employs almost you know, the stats vary between 45 and 60% of the labor force. So what happens in agriculture has a huge, massive impact on people's livelihoods and their life chances. So some people support these reforms for econ- on economic grounds, but there was very little consultation. Uh, the opposition tried to get it to parliamentary committee to review the bills before they were pushed through in September. The government denied them that opportunity. So the mess that they're facing is of their own making. Um, and I think in that sense, it's a, they've created a political situation that didn't have to be the case. It is um, certainly worrying um, for many of our neighbors um, and certainly something that we need to keep our eye on. And I really appreciate you, Sanjay, coming on and explaining it all to us. I really appreciate that. Thanks again. Thank you. That is uh, Sanjay Ruparelia, who is a professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays live at noon.